Right. Um, welcome everybody to the LSE, to the Literary Festival and to the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, today's event is entitled Philosophy by Podcast and um, as you're probably well aware we have two speakers who are very well qualified to speak on this topic because they run a very successful series of philosophy, philosophy podcasts entitled Philosophy Bites. Um, so David Edmonds is Senior Research Associate at the um, at the University of Oxford and is co-author of a number of books including Wittgenstein's Poker, um, Bobby Fischer Goes to War and Rousseau's Dog. Seems to me that you have you like to focus on arguments. Fights, you know, fights. fights. We're, we're trying to engineer one tonight. <laughs> so maybe we'll have, we'll have an argument tonight as well. Uh, and he's also making radio documentaries for the BBC. Um, and Nigel Warburton is Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the Open University though I believe that you just actually resigned that to become a freelance philosopher, writer, and... I'm still working for the Open University today, until, until June. Until yeah. June, right. Um, he's also written a number of books, including A Little History of Philosophy, Philosophy the Basics, Philosophy the Classics, Thinking from A to Z, and The Art uh, Question. And um, also, Free Speech, A Very Short Introduction. Which is, I think, the latest book. And as I just said, together, um, Nigel and David produced this very successful series of philosophy podcasts entitled Philosophy Bites, in which features basically top philosophers being interviewed on bite-sized topics. And they've also, on the basis of this series, um, published two books. You might want to hold them up, right? Philosophy Bites and Philosophy Bites. For the podcast. Hold them up for the podcast. (laughs) And uh, if you're interested in those books, uh, you'll have an opportunity to <laughs> purchase them and get them signed after this event right outside um, the theatre. So tonight's topic is philosophy by podcast, basically the idea being to what extent can we use the technology of the 21st century to actually engage in philosophical debate and discussion. You might wonder to what extent podcast is actually suitable for philosophical debate and so on. And I think the claim that you'd like to put forward or the question that you'd like to raise is whether, in fact, this 21st century technology can, in some sense, bring back the ancient art of Socrates' philosophy in the marketplace, direct interaction, questioning of people um, into today's world. And so, yeah, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome both of you here, and I'm looking forward to the dialogue that you're going to have, and it's, uh, I take it, going to be quite interactive as well, so there'll be plenty of opportunity for you to ask questions and, and comment and engage with the speakers. Thanks. I think the first thing we should say, well, thank you very much, um, the first thing we should say is that we're very amenable to people putting their hands up and asking questions as we're going along. So feel free to interrupt visually and I believe there's at least one roving mic. So wait for the mic so that you get onto the podcast and fire away at any point. Any questions? Right, as you might have noticed, this event will also be podcast, obviously, so you'll have an opportunity to, to listen to it again later or to you know, forward the link to people who couldn't perhaps attend in person tonight. So, well, how should we begin? Should we talk about the origins of uh, Philosophy Bites? That's a, a sensible place to start. Um, so, um, as was just explained, um, my day job is with uh, the BBC, um, BBC World Service, where I've been for 20 years making documentaries, uh, and occasionally making documentaries on programmes on philosophy, uh, but very sporadically, because uh, the BBC has a lot of other things to cover, 
like news, sport, art, and so on. And there's a limit to how much room they can give to philosophy. And I was getting frustrated, uh, although the BBC is the greatest uh, broadcast organisation in the world, I was getting frustrated that I could get so little philosophy commissioned. And, um, well, actually, the origins of I came to see Nigel give a, give a talk. We'd got to know each other a bit because Nigel was very helpful when I was writing my book on Rousseau. And um, I came to see Nigel give a um, uh, interview, actually, and now somebody who's a mutual friend of ours, Stuart Franklin, who the, the was then the head of Magnum, the, the photo agency, and you asked very sensible questions. Um, so I thought what we should do is start up a philosophy podcast. Um, it's uh, fantastically kind of liberating having your own podcast and not having to rely on an organisation. You can cut out the management and all the bureaucracy. Uh, and it's extremely liberating that we have no particular length for these podcasts. So um, uh, they can be anything from about, the, I think the shortest is about 10, the longest is about 20 minutes. If you work for the BBC, you have a particular slot which might be 27 minutes and 30 seconds. And you can spend hours and hours trying to get that last 10 seconds down for your 10 seconds over and you've got to take out 10 seconds that you really don't want to miss. Whereas these podcasts can really be as long as they deserve to be. So um, I approached Nigel, Nigel said yes, and we started about five years ago. Yeah, Dave should say that he said, oh, I've got this idea for a podcast series. I didn't really understand what a podcast was, I think, at that point. Uh, I'd just been experimenting with web blogs and doing a little bit of audio, but as I understand it, a podcast is, is just a name for audio material that's put out on the internet, and it, it's not much different from radio recording, any other kind of recording. There's nothing mystical about a podcast. Uh, but Dave said, oh, I've got this idea and I want to do um, 52 episodes in the first year, and I, I thought he was joking. <laughs> but Dave's actually a workaholic, and uh, so that we, we, I think we did 60 in the first year, which sounds an incredibly onerous task, but actually it's the most liberating thing I've ever done. And it, um, I was going through the doldrums in my feelings about philosophy at that point, and it's just been an amazing chance to talk to some incredible thinkers and get a chance to ask the questions I want to ask and have private tutorials with them. And the fact that people are listening and, and, and showing interest as well is even better. But for me, what's emerged, though, is a view about the importance of podcasting as a way of communicating philosophy. I've always been interested in communicating philosophy to a wide audience. The first book that I wrote was Philosophy the Basics, which was designed to be accessible without, patr without being patronising. That was My worry was that most introductory books on philosophy were, with some notable exceptions, either simplifying or uh, patronising to their readers, and I felt there are ways of explaining philosophy clearly, which it's not that difficult. It's not, it's not like theoretical physics, which genuinely is difficult. And even with theoretical physics, there are people who can, who can explain it, but philosophy isn't such a difficult subject, but philosophers often make it obscure in their language. So that's the background of this, but in terms of podcasting, you get an even better opportunity because, first of all, because it's spoken, people don't, in conversation tend to resort to the te technical terms so much. And if they do, we can cross-question them and say, what on earth do you mean by that? But secondly, in the, the human voice, if, if it's not read out, you can understand much better because of the weight of different sorts of sentences, the, the, the weight on different words. It just makes it more 
easy to understand, even people aren't completely coherent, like I'm not being at the moment. The combination of that with Dave's amazing editing means that hopefully you can follow quite difficult bits of philosophy because you know you're only going to get 15 or 20 minutes, you know you're going to get to the end, you can listen to it again, you can do it while you're walking, some people listen to them in the gym, there's a sense in which it's, because it's repeatable, it doesn't matter if you miss a bit. There's the intimacy of headphones as well, which allows, I think that's an amazing, that's had an amazing impact on how people listen to the spoken word, because you can isolate the spoken word. In the old days, you do the washing up, listening to the radio and lost some stuff. Uh, If you have headphones on, you can really hear every word, and not just the words, but the weight of the words, the the character of the person. Here, yeah. Wait for the microphone, though. Where's it coming from? That way. Hi, basically, my name's Lloyd. Um, I've come here on behalf of an organisation I help run called The Philosophy Takeaway, and what we do is, we do exactly what was sort of brought up before, is that we actually go into market stalls and host stalls and host debates and ask people what they think philosophy is. Now, I've listened to the podcast and they are great, but the problem that I feel that they have is that, and that we're trying to find at the moment, is that people need to have a semblance of interest in philosophy in the first place in order to either put philosophy into a search engine, to look up any sort of books or even these podcasts in the first place. If they've got no interest or any knowledge of what philosophy is, they're not going to look these podcasts up. What we're trying to do, and I think maybe it would be something that could be beneficial to a few organisations, is we're trying to go out there and trying to see what people think philosophy are, get over their preconceptions, and we're trying to get that first step that then can build on to that interest to look up a podcast or look up a, a book on the introduction to philosophy. So I suppose the question we're trying to ask is, do you think that maybe yours is the second step in terms of people getting into philosophy and that schemes that are trying to develop that first step in asking people what they feel philosophy are are something that should be supported and something that we can learn from each other? Thanks for the question. Um, what I would say is why? why? Why do you have a duty to evangelise in a kind of missionary way, you're going out into these places where people have never heard of philosophy, have no interest in it, and you, you want to convert them. I'm quite happy to be providing accessible ways into philosophy for people who want it, but I don't feel the need to go to people who have no interest in philosophy and just persuade them you really should be reading philosophy. Perhaps they want to read a novel, poetry, watch the television, go to the movies. That's up to them. Uh, and we Bertrand don't... Russell famously said some people would sooner die than think. In fact, they do. <laughs> that's fine. You know, that's, if they want to live that way, I'm not, I, don't, I don't have to convert them. But if they want to understand philosophy, I think historically the, um, the academy has been rather reluctant to communicate beyond the walls. Uh, a lot of philosophers talk to each other, and this has changed in the last 10 or 15 years as well, but historically with exceptions like Brian McGee's famous TV series, there have been very few ways into philosophy for intelligent people who just want to get a grounding in philosophy, try to understand what's going on, what's current, and so on. And so it seems to us that podcasts are very good as a medium for that, 
But we don't have to, a feeling that we... I'm certainly, I can't speak for David, but I don't have any feeling that, OK, there's all these people we haven't converted yet, we need to convert them. So, so, can I respond to that? Or? Uh, briefly. Well, I, I don't see it as a, as a form of conversion. I see it as a form of giving someone an opportunity to do something they might not have previously got. What we're doing is not there to convert, we're there to engage, and we're there to engage people in debates and give them to, an opportunity to understand something they might not have done. Do you know what I mean? We're not evangelicals in any no, way. No, just the way you described it. So, that, so we're in the same business then. That's yeah, fine. that's what I mean. But ours is going out there yeah. to give someone to, an opportunity to understand what philosophy is in the first place. If you don't know what the word means, you're not going to know if there's any interest in the first place. Well, well actually, most philosophers don't know what the word well, means, which is kind of interesting. We did a series of interviews where every time we did an interview, we, we asked a question at the end, said, what do you think philosophy is? And we got about... 65, 65 we've got, we got them here, answers. 65 different um, answers from 65 different philosophers. So, I, mean, uh, I think philosophy is an activity, fundamentally, and I think that even when you're studying the history of philosophy, it's an activity of thinking, it's not just learning facts about the history of philosophy, it's more like, it, um, if you were studying art history, it's more like you've got to learn to draw as well as to appreciate the great paintings and so on. It's, it, um, it's the difference between it being an armchair sport where you sit there and become a critic from, with, with the TV controls and the difference between that and getting out there and kicking a ball around and learning something about the game. I don't think you can fully understand philosophy unless you engage with the ideas. And So again, that's quite good because usually you do it in monologue form. Uh, that's a histor- historically the way that people teach philosophy to some degree, not when they use the Socratic method, but people stand at a podium and preach philosophy at you. That, I don't think, is a very good way of learning philosophy, and I'm very opposed to the idea that long lectures to large audiences are the way to do it. Unfortunately, in my 20 years or so as a university lecturer, there have been fewer and fewer opportunities in most universities for students to engage in dialogue and discussion. So by staging discussions, and I, take, I try and take on the role of every man or every woman, as it were, asking questions that other people might want to ask, not just the ones I want to ask. There's a route into dialogue, and hopefully people are listening in an active way and not just passively there. I mean, our suspicion was, when we began this, that there were plenty of people out there who were interested in philosophy and who weren't having any access um, to the kind of people we speak to, and that's been borne out by, by the download figures, which, I mean, we're about to hit 17 million, I think, now. So, um, and the, the first interview we did, which was with Simon Blackburn, I think has been downloaded about 170,000 t- times or something yeah. like that. So, uh, but we, you, we, these numbers on, in the internet, people sing their own praises quite a lot when they get high numbers. So I tried to take a measure of what that means, and I looked at the Open University download figures for the same period. That's 1,200 academics with some full-time podcasting staff and so on. On iTunes U, for the same period, they had 61 million downloads. The two of us doing this in our spare time um, had 16.7 million downloads. So, so it's, 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 it's been um, facilitated, or it's been possible because of the revolution in communications and the fact that with a small tape recorder, we can basically produce a professional programme um, to professional standards. And for the zillions of you listening at home, this, what, we're, what you're hearing won't be edited 
Um, so uh, you'll hear all our ums and ahs and so all our repetitions. We're going to be critical about this podcast <laughs> we're appearing on now. So in a sort of self-reflective way, th- you're going to hear that this isn't edited out. This intervention won't be edited out because that's not how they do the things here. But if we were doing it, if we talk over each other and it doesn't quite work and I stumble over my words, that bit wouldn't appear in the podcast. Dave tries to, and I think succeeds, in making these... Um, edits very discreetly, so you're not aware of them necessarily. It may seem that some of our speakers are incredibly eloquent. Um, but actually, they stop, there are gaps. If you're listening through headphones, that's really irritating. So somebody listening to me now think, what on earth is he going on about? Um, and I armed. That would all go from the... the philosoph- philosophers thing. are very, very clever people. But even so, about 50% of what is said in an average conversation can, can be removed. Uh, with not with a, everything, with a, not with every interview. Not with everybody, though. not with everybody. There are some exceptions. Some people <laughs> speak in perfect sentences, fully formed ideas, no gaps, and, and mind-blowing. There are, there are um, a few incredible examples of that. We, we, we always cite the example of Quentin Skinner, who's one of the great uh, philosophers of our, of our time. And uh, as I say, we try and edit these down to below uh, 15 minutes if possible, but every single... Paraphrase every single clause was absolutely kind of essential to the whole and was beautifully constructed and couldn't be edited. So he's, he's an example of somebody who was almost impossible to edit. But on the whole, people benefit from being heavily edited. And so we, we, <laughs> we, you get left, what you're left with is the kind of pure meat of the philosophy. So uh, 15 minutes is not very long. But it, it comes out to about three and a half thousand words if it's transcribed. And you can say a lot. You can say a lot in that in that period. Um, so you get a lot of philosophy in that period. Um, we know that a lot of professional philosophers listen to it, and uh, it's, it's partly because in the, the last few decades, I mean, I guess people have been complaining about this for a hundred and so years, the professionalisation of philosophy. But philosophy has become very, very specialised. Um, and, I mean, if we think back to people like Bernard Williams, who died a few years ago, he would... He, wrote about Descartes and Nietzsche and, and personal identity and, and moral philosophy. But there are very few philosophers now... philosophy and... All sorts of things. Ne- uh, very few philosophers now covering, covering the whole gamut. Um, and even in moral philosophy, there'll be people who specialise in a tiny bit of moral philosophy and won't be aware of what's happening in other areas of moral philosophy. So they kind of listen to us because we're joining up the dots, as it were, in philosophy. We've got a question from the back. So in a sense, it's not really like the it's not really like the time of Socrates because there's quite a lot of editing that kind of filters through that process of dialogue. Where as we're speaking now, there are the ums and the ahs as we go to the next sentence, as we gather our next thought. Whereas what you present to us has had that kind of that next level of thought taken out of it. So do you think it's as good as? As close to Socrates as, Pl- as Plato might have been, been an editor. <laughs> How do you know anything at all about Socrates? He didn't write anything down. We know about Socrates through Plato, who was a, a superb editor, editor writer, <laughs> and other people who wrote Socratic dialogues. So, in a sense, in that sense, we're doing a similar thing. Though, actually, we've noticed the um, transformation from an audio podcast which, is, which could be really intelligible to something that appears as a book, as a written dialogue, involves quite a lot of further editing, and not just on our behalf. So the, the way we get from a, a podcast interview to a, a chapter of a book like this is that we do a transcript, tidy it up, 
send it to the person concerned, and they usually want to change quite a lot of the sentence structure, um, not just to make it more grammatical, but to make it work. And when you can't give the particular... Look, some phrases might be ironic. Somebody makes a joke. If you have a literal transcription of that, it doesn't sit well. Um, just like the, when you send an email, somebody doesn't realise that you're being <laughs> ironic. If you, if you speak to them, they usually do. So that, that occurs. So it's, it's not... It's, it, it, that's, that's one thing. In terms of Socrates, Socrates famously, as I said, didn't write anything down. He had a reason why, and it was partly to do with the idea that the written word, however many times you go back to it, always just says the same thing. Whereas a human being adapts what they say according to the context, according to the person in front of them. And he has this analogy with sowing seeds. You wouldn't want to sow seeds on barren land. Um, You choose who you say what to and when. So there's a sense in which we are having a... When an interview is going on, it's kind of a Socratic dialogue in the sense that uh, there's at least one philosopher in the room and somebody asking questions. So there's a dialogue. It may be edited, but it's the essence of what went on in the room. It's not that we put words into their mouths. But also it's got this capacity to communicate as the spoken word and as Socrates said, in the spoken word, you can, you can communicate things which are not just verbal. There's a sense in which there's, there's an enthusiasm that comes through sometimes, which is part of the topic. So for me, the really inspiring thing is, you go and talk to somebody about quite an obscure topic, and they're so enthusiastic that it's contagious. You catch philosophy from these people because it's in their voice and in the way of approaching the subject, the personality of the individual is part of the philosophy. And that's often lost in these dry academic journals that we force students to read sometimes. Uh, But it's there underlying it. I thought, if I can just sort of maybe interject briefly, I thought it was really interesting what you said about the different forms of communicating philosophy. Obviously, well, on the one hand, it relates to this being a literary festival, right? So, you know, it's different types of literature, different types of communication, but also, because at the Forum for European Philosophy, what we're trying to do is, in a sense, very similar to what you're trying to do. So we're trying to make philosophy accessible, give people who might not be professional professional philosophers, who might not be students, who might not be academics, an opportunity to interact with philosophers, to, to sort of um, engage in debate, get, get access to ideas. But of course, there's different ways of doing it, right? So we, we do have these kind of 90-minute types of events, which might be lectures, might be dialogues, might be panel discussions, might be sort of very interactive discussions with the audience, which we then, in addition to, just offer the, the podcast recording of this, that event. But of course, the focus then since the event is kind of like in, in the foreground and then a podcast is just a recording of that. It's sort of quite different from your sort of focus on the podcast itself. But then so of course there's the book, there's the yeah. article. So there's yeah. all these different ways... And neither of us see it as a separate activity. So we, we, we both... We podcast, but we both write. So, Nigel, you've just written... You wrote about uh, free speech. Um, I mean, that... I didn't just write it. It's quite a long time ago. But yeah. Not just, yeah. a year and a half ago. But, I mean, those... That, that, in a way, presumably, you, you interviewed lo- we interviewed lots of people about free speech, so that, that was presumably useful for your, for your book. I think the process of, have, of meeting really clever people is brilliant for anybody. And what you pick up isn't content, it's styles of thinking. I think it's, 
seriousness about certain sorts of topics. I think having a nose for philosophy is a really underestimated quality that's important in very successful philosophers. They know which questions to ask. It's not just they have the critical thinking abilities that allow them to plough through the forest, as well, that's a strange metaphor, but to cut their way through the thickets. Um, it's they know which questions are worth asking and have, a, have strategies for thinking about how to, how to approach them, whether through thought experiments or through more abstract thinking, linking up with different strategies from other areas of philosophy. Philip Foot famously, I know you're having a session on Philip Foot famously said the most important thing for philosophy is having a good nose for yeah, philosophy. Right. And that's, so, that's really, what she was... But then I don't think people have taken that very seriously because we don't get people... No, we, I've never been to a, um, an undergraduate lecture which focuses on how you get this good nose. If you were doing wine tasting, it would be perfectly normal <laughs> for people to reflect on how to sense the different bits of, of, the, of the wine and discriminate. I don't think we train people to do that. We expect them to pick up those skills just by hanging around. Now, if you're lucky t- enough to be at the LSE or Oxford or Cambridge or London University generally, you do hang around with some very clever people and get some of this stuff. But I don't think there's enough reflection on what it is to acquire the high-level skills in philosophy. It's not just a matter of learning almost by rote how to do certain sort of moves, martial arts-type moves in critical thinking. It's about recognising where to deploy those skills. But maybe that's actually picking up on what you said earlier in your first question. Right? Maybe a way of getting that knowledge is actually try to get people just engaged in questions that they might already have but might not be perhaps aware of that they had them or that they were philosophical questions. I mean, I tend to think everybody has certain questions in their life that they're really interested in. Right? They might not always be consciously aware of that, but you know, it's, it's quite often the case when you talk to someone. They, have, they already have a sort of a, a good question that's <coughs> somewhere lurching in the back of what they're doing or what they're, what they're thinking. Yeah, well, I mean, Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein thought we were all philosophers, but he thought we ought to put away sometimes... <laughs> Our inner philosopher, uh, which could get there, us into there trouble. There are three questions backed up here as well, so <laughs> at least. So that's Why not uh, teaching philosophy like business school uh, teach business with a mix of lectures where you spend your whole time um, during one hour listening to the professor and try to uh, understand the, the theoretical concepts, but also... Um, some other sessions where you come to class, the professor's role is to facilitate the discussion in an intelligent way to try to lead somewhere among students the discussion, and the students come to the class when they have already learned the concept at home. Just join. And the follow-up question is, why accepting only... Um, I mean, today is great, actually. We have all different backgrounds, I guess, and different walks of life. But at, at university, why accepting only um, students who have... Um, um, I mean, for example, at New York University, I was accepted at the Master of Psychology, and I have never studied psychology. Um, I was probably the only one, but I guess in, in, at school, I would have brought... I didn't go, you know, but I, I did something else. But I would have brought a different perspective to discussions than those who are just uh, theoretical, you see. So why not opening the um, philosophy class to other students or professionals who want to participate? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean one of the exciting developments in philosophy uh, in the past decade or so, and particularly the area I'm, I am very interested in moral philosophy, is the opening up to other disciplines like psychology, like neuroscience. So we've done a few interviews on experimental ethics and on 
the neuroscience of of um, ethics as well. The, these scans that people are doing, well, people take moral decisions, looking which bits of the brain are operative when when particular dile- when they face particular dilemmas. And so, actually, philosophy is opening up, and we've interviewed quite a few people now who are cross-disciplinary, um, uh, who come from psychology backgrounds or neuroscience backgrounds. Uh, and I think it's been very good for philosophy. I've actually been working for, I think, 16, 17 years for the Open University, and we don't have this problem because we have people from a very wide range of backgrounds, and it genuinely is open access. So they're self-selecting, they're they're interested to study, but uh, they don't have to have qualifications to study. So when we've met face-to-face or had interactions, it's brilliant because you have the... What I think is very good for any kind of group discussion is diversity, as you mentioned. I think that's a really important point. If you have a lot of 18-year-olds with the similar sorts of experiences to bring to a group, that's very different from discussing moral questions when somebody's been um, a soldier in wartime, somebody who's, who's a, a nurse, a judge, um, a neurosurgeon, um, a business expert, all in the same room together an art historian who's, who's published on, on um, art history, all in the same tutorial group, they may be very high-level thinkers in their own spheres and quite confident to, confident to con- contribute, but then there might be somebody who works in a paint factory who's got a particular angle on the nature of work, or um, I've taught in prisons and had the interesting um, first experience of going into a prison and um, when I finally got through the security... I met the the student, and the topic was a a topic in applied ethics. The first essay was on capital punishment. He said, uh, oh, um, as a murderer, I found this a particularly interesting (laughs) topic. Now, that, that to me, is really doing philosophy. And that's... We can lose that within a very narrow academic confine. You know, philosophy is for everybody. And it applies in different ways to different areas of life. But I think it... So I should say about our audience, because... um uh, I guess our audience isn't reflective of the world population as a whole. For one thing, they're, they're interested in philosophy, so that makes them slightly weird. But nonetheless, it's much more diverse than one might get in a university. So we know that we have soldiers who, who are on the battlefield in Afghanistan who listen. And, and we just did a piece, our last interview was on, on uh, gun control. Well, we know what reaction we'd get if we did, uh, if there was a lecture on gun control in in London, and we know what most people would think about it, and that's not the reaction we got no, from all our from all our listeners. Who uh, we got uh, some flack actually. We, we, <laughs> but, you know, obviously we took a liberal line. We didn't. Inter- well, well, we didn't take a liberal obviously. line. We, we didn't. didn't, we didn't well, take- you argued the case of Dave. Dave did the interview with Jeff McMahon, uh, which was a great interview, um, because Dave challenged a liberal, a kind of classic liberal, moral philosopher on whether he was being consistent in his desire to control guns in America. Not on the constitutional issue at all, but on, the, on whether as a philosopher he was being consistent. So there was room for the gun lobby to uh, recognise the voice in that debate. We got some emails saying this was great, but you didn't, even push him, you didn't quite push him far enough because he didn't respond to you. So, so there's it, a sense yeah, there was room yeah, for the debate. Yeah, yeah. But actually, you give that talk in a, in a university environment everybody is left of centre more or less and thinks that gun control is a good thing to some extent so it would be very unusual to have um, 
any reaction to that. But we, we, we did get these emails saying, you, you know, you, you're, not, you're not taking this seriously. It's a real issue. We need to own these automatic weapons. <laughs> um, Mike, Wait till you're under attack. You'll realize too. Okay, thank you. Uh, just a quick question for both of you guys. Um, um, so listening into um, how we all praise Socrates and Plato and all the great thinkers of the past, however, don't you think philosophy today has actually failed them in the sense that... Um, oh, what, sorry? Has failed them. Has failed. technically failed them as it has become more specialised where philosophers have actually narrowed themselves and like put themselves away thinking that, oh, we cannot actually force people to think, so we should not actually convert anybody ways of thinking when I generally assume that everybody who's a human being has the capacity to think and it's just getting the right level of engaging with that person where their mentality, background or their religion might be. Um, how would you say that going forward, uh, besides these minor technological uh, achievements, how do you think generally we can actually get people in public engaging and debating and talking and actually exchanging ideas and somehow breaking down the barriers of, of the ones who are thinking and the ones who are not. I'm very sympathetic to the idea that there should be more public debate. I'm completely committed to freedom of expression within limits, but quite extreme limits by some people's um, and some people's views. I think that uh, we don't have enough forthright discussion about political issues. We get very lame newsnight discussions where somebody opens up a, a really interesting issue which has philosophical underpinnings, like inequality. You know, inequality is the major problem in Britain and the world, depending um, how you see it. We, we have the empirical research which shows the problems that are caused by inequality, the side effects of inequality, and yet there are many people who are not aware of that sort of research, haven't discussed issues about inequality. It crops up every now and then in the news and some, there's, a, there's a, a gesture towards discussion of it. But that just, just as one example, we haven't, we haven't had those public debates about do we want a highly, uh, a high level of inequality of wealth in Britain? Is that what we really want? Even if the benefits in terms of having... Um, rich people come and live in the country will gradually, allegedly trickle down. Have we had that as a public debate? I don't think we have. And I think philosophers have something to contribute to it, but not everything. Obviously, you need a range of people there, but I think many political philosophers have got their heads down and, and aren't willing to stand up and talk about the issues of the day because they don't really have time to reflect on those issues. Unless they've got pre-thought out, pre-packaged ideas, they wouldn't risk going on live radio and contributing to the debate, with but, some exceptions, but there are very few who want to take those risks. But the question of equality, even in philosophy, is remarkably complicated. We've done an interview with an, uh, Alex Verhoover, who's uh, here at the London School of Economics, and people, I don't think, quite understand their intuitions about equality. So there's this problem about whether you are improving the world by levelling down. So, for example, if 90% uh, uh, of... of the population have 10 units of whatever it is, well-being, and 10% of the population have 20 units, are you in some way making the world a better place by reducing that top 10% to the level of the 90%? Uh, is, is the world in any way a better place by it being more equal? Most people, I think, 
initially think, well, equality is per se a good thing. But then you think about that thought experiment and you wonder whether the world is in any way a better place by making the better off as badly off as the rest of, it, as the, rest of the population. And it, uh, it becomes quite complicated. So I think it, uh, even something apparently straightforward like questions about equality, uh, I think... Uh, uh, philosophically uh, extremely interesting and nuanced. But it doesn't mean you can't have a debate about that and discuss that openly. I think there's interest in it. I think there's a, what we found is there's a very widespread interest in the philosophical questions. I mean, talking about the nature of punishment, there was something, an interesting article in The Guardian today about, I think it was a Norwegian prison where people are given a great deal of freedom and responsibility, even long-term prisoners... And what seems like quite a luxurious lifestyle. Now, we've got this highly punitive um, prison system which has resulted or doesn't seem to be stopping recidivism. There's a lot of people going back into jail. It doesn't seem to be working. And the solution seems to be assumed these people deserve really harsh punishment. Even if it doesn't work, this is what the popular feeling is. But we haven't really had those debates recently. We got rid of capital punishment, but we haven't got rid of the idea of crammed cells in Victorian prisons with people learning the, the trade of crime in prisons. We haven't, we haven't looked at the other alternatives seriously for a long time in public, I don't think. And, and OK, so there's this article in The Guardian. That's really interesting. It was written by um, a former criminal as well, which added another twist to the, the tale of it. But we haven't got these philosophers discussing in public, well, what is, what is the justification of punishment? Should we be, look, be looking for more humane ways of um, imprisoning people? Should we be finding ways which avoid the problems to society of releasing prisoners who have been locked up for 10 years and have barely um, got the ability to manage their own budgets? You know, is, that a good, is that a good way to operate? We haven't had those discussions. Why haven't we had them? I, guess I don't know. Question, right? and what can we do to maybe... Well, one way might be... To, oh, you're off. That was it, was it? Oh, no, thanks. Okay, thanks. Why haven't we had these discussions? I don't know. Maybe people have got theories about this. I'd be interested to hear them. So we've got a question here, and then... Um, hi. Um, I was interested in what you said about uh, sort of changing the medium which you hear philosophy, and, and uh, now we're, we can hear it in audio form rather than just uh, sort of... Sp- uh, lecturers or uh, in books, and that that brings a sort of uh, uh, a different possibility and a different angle to it, and a kind of uh, you know what you were saying about um, the sort of nowness of you can sort of hear people thinking uh, on the podcast, and that's quite a pleasure to hear. Um, uh, I was wondering, I, I didn't realise you'd done sixty. I've only got about nine of. No, no, we've done now. We've done uh, over two hundred. Oh my god. And that's just the philosophy bites here. That's only one series. You've got social science bites, multiculturalism bites, bioethics bites, ethics okay. bites, free speech it? bites. Well, what I was wondering was um, podcasting is great because it's cheap and you can get stuff out there really quickly, but it's also audio is just a really great medium. And was there any subject matter? Was there a particular content you were talking about which became enhanced by the medium, which really was really opposite for the medium. Did you ever find that when you were interviewing or editing? Um, we've done one about humour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, and music as well. Music. We did one about music where the guy uh, we interviewed sang his way out of the podcast. That was quite interesting. Uh, <laughs> and, and part of humour is timing. Then uh, there, there were jokes that work in a podcast that won't work on the page. Um, so there are some that. There are some subjects we've done that lend themselves specifically to the voice. If they've got a performative... Element it, it, to them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there are performers who are particularly... That's the wrong word, but there are interviewees who are very adept at <coughs> engaging in dialogue, and some people are more nervous about it, and that perhaps is portrayed in their voice. But some people have just got beautiful voices and deserve to be heard. Um, John Campbell's voice, I don't know if you've listened to the interview on Schizophrenia... Uh, schizophrenia we've released recently um, he's got a beautiful uh, Scottish accent and a very warm voice, it's just mesmerising to listen to him, whatever he's saying so on the page you don't get that, you just lose a part of his character, you lose the sense of who he is and the rhythms of his speech are, uh, are, are part of the delivery that's part of him and One more question, in terms of the editing process um, it's, it's a really um, simple but effective formula, I think. Philosophy Bites uses the, the sort of music that moves to a slight discord and a, a contradiction and, and sort of brings out the aporia of, of what's going on. Do you notice it's resolved at the end of the piece? Oh, it does resolve. <laughs> Good. Um, I, I wondered, did you ever think about um, mixing it up anymore? Did you ever think about anything else you could, could do with the, the structure? <laughs> the... Uh, we... we... Oh, sorry. We have thought about it. It's, it's a very um, straightforward format. It's been a successful format, and it's, it's, it's relatively kind of cheap and easy to do, and we haven't got that much time. There's a limit to, to how much time we have. Debates are much more complicated. You need, you need to, to do them properly. You need to mix them with a, in a proper kind of studio to... For them to really work, um, so we've we've stuck to this format. We we have thought about varying it from time to time, but um, uh, as I say, for various kind of logistical reasons, we've 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 kept to to, to you know what's worked from the beginning. Um, so we have no real plans to to change it. Sure. I've I've done some other experiments. So I've podcast some chapters from my book Philosophy of the Classics just straight, read them out straight. And you do get quite a few listeners just from that. Um, people seem to value short introductory talks as well. There is the scope for the monologue there. but The monologue is very, very difficult to carry off. I mean, in, in the BBC there was a guy called Alistair Cook, who some of you will remember, who used to do a 15-minute talk from America every week, letter from America. And we still have a 15-minute talk on the BBC and a, a few people can carry it off for a few sessions, but the number of people who can talk engagingly for 15 minutes and keep the listener's attention is, is very few and far between. It's incredibly difficult. Whereas if you're interacting with people, which is why a podcast is often more engaging than a lecture, and it's why the best bit of a lecture is often when you open it up to questions, and that's when it comes alive. It's just uh, it's much more easy to absorb. Um, so... You know the conversation works well, and and uh, you know I, th- I think as I say monologues are monologues are tough to. But there is this phenomenon though that I've noticed when I interview people. There are some people who have little chunks of lectures which you can accidentally trigger, 
<laughs> and that's terrible because it's like a pre-packaged yeah. modular yeah. component that they get out for you. Oh, that's it. And, you know, the, out comes the modular bit. You slot that into the bit of... And they're not thinking. Somebody mentioned you can hear people thinking. For me, that's the essence of this medium, that you get people to think, and they are spontaneously reacting to what's in front of them, not rehearsing something and bringing it out on, onto the stage, but, but actually thinking on their feet there and then. And that's when you see the real brilliance, and people enjoy it when they get, it, when they get into it. Some people actually relish being thrown a googly, as it were, because they can then show that they understand their subject so well they can recognise that it is an issue, but that the, the, their theory isn't particularly affected by that issue. I mean, not every thinker thinks in that way, but it's, it's fantastic if you can just unleash that there by prompting them in the right way, but I absolutely detest that. Um, oh, you know, I've got that, just the answer for you, here it is. Um, that, that's not what we're trying to do at all, and that might as well have been a podium lecture, or a little bit of a podium lecture, and it doesn't really work. You can hear it in the voice. I think you can hear it in political speeches that people make, whether they're sincere or not, and I think you can hear it we pick up, we're very well attuned as listeners to insincerity and lack of interest in the voice. It should be said, one of the values of this is the collection of an archive now. So, um, for one thing, if you were to listen to them end to end, I mean, God knows how many hours there are now, but many, many hours. I, I, I um, estimated once, that when I was an undergraduate, I had one-to-one tuition, and we, I probably had 40... Uh, individual uh, tutorials. Um, we've done over what over 200, so I've had the equivalent of five degrees, which at 9,000 uh, pounds uh, a term, that's at least 45,000 pounds worth of, of philosophy lectures. With some pretty good tutors, as with well. some with some top tutors. Uh, but it's not just that; it's a, it's now a great kind of archive of subject matter. I mean, it's actually a great now archive of philosophers, and, and it's sad to say that a few of the people we've we've interviewed have now passed on. Ronnie Dworkin most recently, um, who we've interviewed. And there's not much of Ronnie Dworkin out there on audio. Jerry Cohen in, is another one. Um, and Michael Dummett. Michael Dummett, See, of course. See, the trouble is, with the BBC's lockdown, a lot of the content that was there, because it's only recent material that's being kept in perpetuity. So you can get access to a lot of the In Our Time audio, but there's a lot of interviews in the past, that were done in the past that... Maybe the tapes have been wiped or they didn't secure the rights and they're just not accessible online for most people. So we're finding... I mean, for instance, when Michael Dummett died, we had requests to use bits of that interview. There's an Australian um, uh, radio programme wanted to use some. That, that's a shame because you know, these were very eminent people that had a lot to say. And part of them is how they communicated it yeah. in yeah. Yeah. the room, yeah. not just yeah. how they... Yeah were on paper. Yeah, so that their sense of personality comes through the podcast much more than it does uh, on the page. Um, so there's a question there. Um, the gentleman that's now, he left, uh, he mentioned the difference between the thinkers and the non-thinkers, and I'm wondering how much of a class issue you think that is. Um, certainly when I went to university, I was struck by the amount of knowledge that some of my colleagues that had been to private or grammar, school, grammar schools had 
had um, and they were exposed to philosophical ideas and, and a more of a classical education um, do you think it needs more of a proactive pro approach like the uh, gentleman at the front said earlier going out and actually, and actually being proactive because so many people aren't exposed to philosophy um, and Martha Nussbaum has been very proactive in, in pushing for philosophy to be taught in education. I wanted to know whether how, how much mileage you think there is in that campaign and um, yeah, your, for your comments on the issue of class in philosophy. Well, we both support, I think, philosophy being taught in schools, which it never was in our day. Um, I, it was, actually, it was. Um, it was taught by enthusiastic religious studies teachers, it was taught by people who studied philosophy and taught it in general studies. You studied it wasn't philosophy, a, it, I studied, it, I studied it, Latin, you did some philosophy. It wasn't an option as an A-level in the way that mm. it is now. Um, so I studied a bit of Popper, I remember, because I had a history teacher who was, who was a fan of Popper, um, uh, a great LSE man. Um, but we weren't offered it, and I think it's... Uh, I think it's one of those kind of platform subjects, actually, where a, a, a good grounding in philosophy will stand you in good stead for almost any subject. Um, so I would like to see it taught in all schools. I can't comment on whether it's a class, whether it's a class basis or not. But um, I I've, just got, I've got some thoughts on that as well. Then. I, um, I think obviously there is a class issue about how few middle class and aristocratic upper class people study Marx seriously. Um, that you know, Marx tends to be a working class thinker for many people. You know, the people who know their Marx best tend to be people who recognise themselves as working class rather than. Um, Is that true? Well, certainly in my experience, <laughs> the people who you can have got me chapter and verse on Marx. That's definitely the truth. Okay, well, that's a nice. My, my anecdotal evidence is that the people, who, you know, the, the people in my youth who knew Marx inside out were the Socialist Workers' Party guys who'd devoted many hours were the union leaders, were the people who went to night school to learn about Marx. They weren't the people doing the philosophy degrees that I was doing. You know, I, I would engage. I went hitchhiking. Um, yeah, got picked up by some union leaders who were cross-questioning me on Marx. They knew much more about it than me. They were print. Um, uh, union leaders and, and they were not people with, with university degrees they, but they'd read their marks and knew what they thought and how relevant that was to the, the, the work they were doing but that may be all anecdotal but from tomorrow I'm going to be speaking at um, a sixth form conference in Haythrop College and it's really interesting that they're running this twice so that the same conference on two days that's the start of it and then they emailed a few weeks ago and said, Could you, do you mind doubling up and we'll find another venue? So we've got so many people wanting to do um, this one-day conference with a number of speakers that we have actually can run two conferences on each day. So you, you, you go and give the talk, then run along to another venue and give the same talk to a different group of people. So there are a lot of people in sick formers who are interested in philosophy. I don't think there's a necessarily a class thing there because the schools that are attending... Um, are not all public schools by any means. But I, I think there may historically have been a real issue because one of the routes into philosophy was, was the classics and studying ancient Greek was not necessarily an option for in, 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 in many schools, but it was an option in public schools. So. I've got a question here. Hi, hello. Um, 
Aside from your own and maybe philosophy talk in the United States, uh, what other good you know, kind of podcasts are out there? And secondly, how do you encourage kind of active doing of philosophy when they listen, it being a dialogue uh, rather than just a kind of monologue of passively kind of philosophy appreciation? How do you encourage that? Uh, we've got very little competition, I'm pleased to say. There's a, there's, um, a good, great philosopher who was at King's, who's now in Germany, called Peter Adamson, who started up his podcast, which is a kind of history of philosophy podcast. There was, there's a radio show um, in Stamford called Philosophy Talk, which is then podcast, but it's completely different from ours. So they have there are two um, Stamford philosophers who discuss a topic with a professional philosopher, and then they open it up to um, anybody who wants to phone in. So people phone in and talk about their problems with Nietzsche or whatever. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting format, but very different from ours. Uh, there was an Australian radio programme. I can't remember what it was called. But the Philosopher's Zone. The Philosopher's Zone, but I don't know what's going to happen to that because, unfortunately, the, the host died last year. Um, but apart from that, there's almost... Talking Heads. There's, there's, there's blogging... There's, blog- there's kind of more blogging, but the, it's also audio, so it's a podcast. It's basically two philosophers just debating a question. It's called Talking Heads, I think. Um, but apart from that, we're, we're, we're out well, there on our own. Our time is, exists with its archive in podcast form, and I think that's fantastic. There are lots of individual lectures on iTunes U. Uh, the, uh, every year there are more uh, philosophy podcasts of various kinds around there if people want to go through them. But unfortunately, lots of them aren't edited, and that's really... Once you've listened to some which are more like radio programmes, it can be very difficult to go back to the unedited version like this one's going to be. There's a brilliant podcast, I just the name of it eludes me at the moment, which is not specifically philosophical, but it takes a topic. It's an American podcast... Yeah, a radio lab. This is my favourite model of a creative use of the medium. It's the beautifully crafted stories as a narrative. They're often on a scientific theme. It might be memory, or it might be um, how we treat the dead. Or they're, they're, there's a big topic, and they follow through a narrative brilliantly, but very creatively combining visits to a laboratory, interviews, and then imaginative ways of even doing the credits. They have the one I listen to. Had the, somebody, uh, some of the contributors were just leaving the, the credits as phone messages on someone's answer phone, which worked really well. You just hear the person who had just been interviewed reading out the credits on an answer phone. It just sounds like it wouldn't work, but it worked really well. That is an excellent podcast. Um, there are Radio Lab. I'd really recommend. But it's not specifically philosophy, is it? I mean, it no, no. Covers but the whole it, you, you said what a good podcast. You didn't say philosophy. Was. Uh, entitled opinion. There's a question at the back next, I think. Oh, sorry, you've got the yeah. microphone. Who's got... Hi. Um, you mentioned earlier about a lot of things about the, uh, the strength of the form, and I wondered if you had any thoughts on what the possible weaknesses of the form of the podcast were and how you may... Uh, any of the tactics you've, had, you've come up with to overcome that. Uh, quite a few weaknesses. <laughs> One is it can go out of control. Um, so... If you're writing an article, you can rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it and and get the structure exactly right. We try and have a map of where we want the conversation to go, a trajectory, but we allow room for manoeuvre, so we don't want it to be completely rigid. Um, But 
you know, on occasion it goes in interesting places, and on occasion it goes down cul-de-sacs and uh, inappropriate detours. Um, obviously, you don't get a chance to re-record, so you know you hope that mistakes are not made with dates and so on. And if they are made, they can be edited out. But sometimes that can be that can be tricky. You know, some people say something which they, on reflection, might regret. I mean, in actual fact, we haven't had a, we've never had a single complaint from a philosopher. They've always thought that it sounded much better than they thought it would. But again, if you're writing an article, you can craft that, and you can't do that in a podcast. So there are lots of limitations to it, um, which we do our best to try and um, navigate. Um, but in the end, it's, you know, it's a conversation, so it has all the weaknesses of a of a conversation, all the shortcomings that that has compared to uh, a written, crafted, carefully composed article. I think there's a risk that rhetoric could win the day and the power of somebody's voice could be more persuasive than the content of what they're saying. Yeah. I don't want to give examples, but, <laughs> <laughs> but there is, okay, there's some, here's, here's an example. Um, because he's so famous and so established, I can do this. Michael Sandel, for instance, has a gr- you know, he's a brilliant thinker, brilliant performer as well. I've seen him speaking to large audiences, engaging people in dialogue and so on. But there's a sense in which he's so adept at forcing a card on you, as it were, that you're not necessarily engaging with him in the moment, but really triggering a kind of set of chess moves that he's already mapped out. And it, you can feel that you can't get round and play the move you want to make because it's a kind of rhetorical device that, 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 that blocks that one. Um, so I think potentially there are some people who are so good at communicating in the spoken word that you could be led in, in ways by, by the power of their voice more than by the power of their argument, the power of their rhetoric. It's not just the power of their voice, it's the, this clever use of an example. That's, because it's not on the page, you can't sort of go, go back immediately and see there's a flaw there. You'd have to rewind, as it were, to, to get to that point, and the moment's lost then. But in the moment, it seemed really persuasive, and then actually, on reflection, that was a bit devious. That is interesting, and that, that, that shows that you can be more persuasive in different ways in conversation than you can... On, on the page. I mean, I guess, ultimately, this comes back to the question, I privilege the page, so I privilege the argument. So ultimately, I want to know that the argument works, not that I'm persuaded by, by the compellingness of the, of the speaker. So, uh, you know, if I was to be given a choice between being persuaded on, uh, in person and being persuaded on the page, I think I would choose the latter, because it's the substance of the argument that ultimately matters to me. But also, some people come across as just likeable. If somebody comes across as likeable, it's much harder to disagree with them as a listener, I suspect, because you just, oh, that's a reasonable sort of person. That person <laughs> so warm in their voice, so warm, they've got a sense of humour. Surely they, they're making sense. So you lose some of that on the page. You've got a, a bit of a distance, so I think it could be too intimate. You've got two up here. Who's... who's? Yeah, oh, oh the lady right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, so my question touches on what you spoke about actually doing philosophy. Um, my question is about how to encourage the level of thinking amongst the general population. Now, I actually had my first encounter with philosophy about 
eight years ago when I went for an interview. It was for a PPE interview. And I had done politics and economics before, and I was very confident. Sorry, PPE is politics, philosophy and economics. It's a university (laughs) course. I had done politics and economics before and never done philosophy, but I think I read, read the book Think and a couple of other... Um, standard philosophy books but nothing could have prepared me for that interview <laughs> it was the worst interview I think I've ever had in my life because I just wasn't prepared for that way of thinking I think she asked me a classic question like why is the grass green and I, it was just this frustration and this back and forth and I think I one, one, at one point mentioned the word faith and she said no we can't use the F word and I remember just being I had a horrific experience but I think it just um, comes back to how do we develop our level of thinking? I know not everyone will be a philosopher. I just get concerned as well because I think we now have so much reactive media. I don't think we have to, people don't necessarily have to think as much if they're not as inclined to that way of, to that sort of, um, or that sort of personality type. And you spoke about people asking the right questions. I just don't think that it's taught as a general skill. How do we develop the skill to think and to break things down and do what philosophers, I guess, do so seemingly naturally. Do you want to tackle that one? I think it's a lot down to early education. And I think what's really interesting is the number of people who are teaching philosophy in primary school and engaging children in open-ended debates where there isn't a straightforward right answer. This is the kind of anti-gove aspect of education, there's an undercurrent of this but there are a lot of people committed to doing this and it follows through into secondary schools as well but obviously the curriculum gets locked down and much more there Uh, I think adolescents are particularly prone to philosophical thinking in as much as they are likely to challenge received opinion, I think that's a distinctive feature of philosophy that philosophers are on the whole prepared to ask questions about orthodoxy and challenge what they've been taught. And I think it feels like a very natural subject for somebody just testing the boundaries of their world and reacting against their parents' presuppositions, reacting against what they see as absurd rules imposed by teachers and, and so on, and challenging them on consistency. So it's a matter of finding a way of... Um, unleashing that spirit of philosophy that's in most adolescents, I think. And that's what I would say, that um, the focus of a secondary <laughs> curriculum could, could be based on, rather than on learning the kings and queens of England and how empire was so great and that kind of thing, which is the direction that we seem to be moving in temporarily, I hope. So uh, I'm not suggesting a curriculum which is all critical thinking and all exploratory, but there should be room for those sorts of discussions because even at the level of does God exist, everybody has got to ask that question at some point if they're a thinking being. And it's a philosophical question. There's not an easy right or wrong answer that you can just read off the world. There are highly intelligent people on both sides of the debate, and there's a real debate about that and what kind of evidence you might have for believing or, or disbelieving in God's existence. So there's one question that could lead into that kind of thinking straight away that is a real question for most people. And if it isn't, you wonder if they're really thinking. You know, if it's so obvious one way or the other, without argument, without investigating, there's something going wrong, I think. And I think here's a question and two there. 
Going back to your discussion of the element of the tone of voice in the discourse, I work as a voice coach. And I'm unsettled by the fact that several years ago I gave several lessons to a barrister, at the end of which he said that uh, since these lessons he'd never lost a case. Yeah. <laughs> now, in defence of my craft, I would say that maybe he was losing cases before that he shouldn't have been losing. But, of course, there is a converse to that. And um, I'm wondering how we police this. I think this, this is a, a very interesting question. And uh, we talked a bit earlier about, about the development of psychology and neuroscience into, into the realm of ethics. And situationist ethics has become a big field. So uh, we now know that if there's a smell of lovely baking bread in the oven, people are likely to be more generous than they were in, in, a, in a place where there's a neutral smell. And we're discovering really scary things about what influences us, the voice just being one. I mean, in, if, you've any, if anybody's read the Daniel Kahneman book, there's some incredible stuff in there about what influences judges and how they reach decisions about how harshly somebody should be punished. And it turns out that uh, how far the decision is from their last meal has a big influence on the punishment they give a person given a particular crime. <laughs> uh, I mean, really scary. Really scary. You, know, you would hope that a judge, with all his or her training, would be able to overcome those kinds of factors, and it turns out that we're not, we're not those kind of creatures. And the voice is just one of numerous influences that affect how we react to, to the world and react to people. I think we should take advantage of this. What would you say we ought to work on as a voice coach? <laughs> I would say that Good speech consists of a balance of reason and emotion. And things go, go wrong when speech either becomes too rationalistic or too emotionalistic. I don't know whether that helps in any way. But no, I, just which, a, a which side to are we erring on? That's the question. I should say, so when I first joined the BBC, I was sent to a, a, a speech therapist because I had 73 identifiable speech defects. <laughs> and it was a strange a Swedish woman in, a, in St. John's Wood who put um, Encyclopedia Britannica on my diaphragm and made me scream in a primeval fashion and to get some... I, I don't know, maybe she thought there was, there was something Freudian going on. Uh, and uh, she thought my... The BBC at that time thought my voice wasn't appropriate for broadcast. And I still do very little broadcast, actually. But since then, uh, a lot of people with voices that aren't traditional voices uh, find them, found themselves on the BBC in a way they wouldn't have done. 20-odd years ago. So you, you've got a much greater spectrum of, of voices. Um, and we're, we're often voice coaches now, but I never kind of take them up on, on the offer. But, but, yeah, if you've got any tips for what we can do better on Philosophy Bites, we'd be grateful. <laughs> well, I would, look, I would look for speech which focuses me on the argument actually more than the personality of the speaker. The, the only useful voice coaching I've ever had boils down to two tips. Okay? One was smile when you speak. 
because it changes the quality. Even if you're not feeling happy, you make the smile movement, and it actually changes the quality of your voice, and you sound more interesting. Um, and the other one was put your feet on the floor. And I always, if I'm in a studio, I always make sure the, um, the seat's quite low and you feel more secure. <laughs> and those two things are the only really useful things that I've ever had come out of when, when, when voice coaching. Before you interview somebody for the BBC, you normally ring them up and you try and establish whether they would be a good interviewee or not. And what's intriguing is within about 10 seconds you can establish whether they're going to be a good interviewee or not. And sometimes you convince yourself, sometimes you tell yourself, actually, I've got it wrong. I'm sure when I meet them in person, they'll be absolutely fine. And they never are. If they're, if they're rubbish on the phone, they're going to be rubbish in person. And you can tell that very quickly. And it, it, it's a combination of a variety of things of which voice is one. And you said that the substance is more important. I mean, actually, enthusiasm, I think, is, is crucial to engaging somebody when you're, when you're talking to them. Um, and obviously you want meat and you want substance, but you want somebody who doesn't... Uh, and, and some nations are better than this than others. So you know, uh, interviewing a Hungarian almost never works. Because you know? <laughs> there's a particular tone to, to the way they speak. Um, uh, so uh, <laughs> some dialects work better than others. And that's because, that's because of the... Uh, of the um, inflection and so on. There's, there are various things that go into making a voice engaging. Um, you must know more, than this, more about this than I do, but uh, uh, you know, some voices work, some, some accents work, and some don't. Do you need that microphone? Um, me again, sorry. I just wanted to go back to your point about um, why there might not be philosophers who are talking about contemporary issues in politics and so on. And um, I've got a theory that maybe it's to do with new media trying to kind of pigeonhole people. So they want expert opinion, but from a very specific position. And so when you have like a news night panel, those people have been selected specifically to convey a, a certain point of view. And I think that philosophy today, a lot of professional philosophers, I'm thinking of Jürgen Habermas, for example, who is so interdisciplinary and can put on so many different hats that it's maybe a bit more difficult to call on a philosopher of our time to present his or her views on a panel because they don't have such specific views about one specific aspect of contemporary society. I don't know if you would agree with that. Well, there are very few public philosophers. Um, and that might, A.C. Groening is the classic. A.C. Groening, and yeah. very, very few. I mean, I think it's in part to do with the fact that philosophy is not about narrative on the whole. I mean, if you think about how many academic historians there are in the public eye, you could name 25 or 30 of them from our universities who go out there and make radio programmes and TV programmes and write. And that's because they're natural storytellers. Uh, and philosophy isn't about narrative. And so it's a much more difficult art form when it comes to communication, I think. Um, Though it could be about narrative. I mean, I know you're writing this book about the trolley problem, trolleyology. Uh, you know this runaway train that's going towards five people and you could switch the, the points of the track so it goes to one person, should you do it? Now, that's a story, there's a narrative, and actually the narrative has got a Baroque kind of complexity in the way it's told by some philosophers, 
but it, it, there's a clear narrative structure. Lots of thoughts experiment, thought experiments in philosophy are stories. Most narratives are about people. Well Most narratives about people. Michael I mean, Sandel it, it, uses narratives very well as well. There's, to illustrate, he uses case studies. He uses Why case studies. Well. Um, narratives, on the whole, have beginnings, middles, and ends. You know, so it, um, uh, history kind of progresses in a chronological order. So um, uh, philosophy, <laughs> philosophy doesn't do that. I mean, in in my trolleyology book, I've, I've tried to tell it as a narrative of an idea, um, but it's a much more difficult sell. Well, you differently with the Wittgenstein's poker is all about different narratives about one event, isn't it? So that Surely those are narratives. That, that was a story. That was a that story. That was a best-selling book, so he's found a way of... <laughs> and Rousseau's dog is a story. There's a story from history about the dispute between human and Rousseau. And it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But so it's very sad. useful on the kind of, like, news night or sort of the programs that she was talking about, right? I mean, okay, so with news night... someone in a particular position, I think it comes back to what you, David, actually said earlier. Even when you think about inequality, as soon as you start actually philosophizing it, yeah, but, but we do have philosophers who hold particular positions. So if you want somebody who's going to be kind of pessimistic about progress, then you might go to John Gray. Or if you want somebody who's interested in animal rights, you'll go to Peter Singer. Or if you want somebody who's interested... No, I th- yeah, I think that's so, certainly true. But I think often it's also the case that as a philosopher you might want to actually yeah. sort of put on a more balanced view yeah. and sort of look at, look, it's, it's yeah. a difficult question and we can look at it from yeah. this angle. But that, yeah. we don't want those essays from philosophy students, do we? You know, somebody says, some people say this, some people say that, who am I to judge? That's a 2-2, two, two, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> no, that's, that, that's true. But, uh, I mean, I guess just in terms of the way issues are often framed in the media today, it's sometimes hard to bring in that more nuanced... It may just be a contingent fact. I mean, I think it... Yeah. I, I mentioned the narrative point, but it may just be a contingent fact. It may be that... we in the future we will get public philosophers um, who kind of are, are slightly more common than they are now from f- philosophy. I mean, in the States there are more of them. So Ronnie Dworkin, who's just passed away, Ronnie Dworkin was a public philosopher who wrote very important articles in the New York View of Books about affirmative action and, and, and race relations and sex discrimination and all sorts of things, and free speech. Um, so, it may just be a, a, that the philosophy world in Britain is currently missing some of those people, and hopefully they yeah, will emerge. In, in Germany, two philosophers very often actually write newspaper articles and columns and stuff. So, I think it's about the role expectations. I don't think it's expected of a, an Oxford professor, a Cambridge professor, that they should have this public stage and should speak to a wider public. A few of them do. But I don't think it's expected. But what, one activity, then, like it's not an activity from your It is interesting that sometimes when there's a big public study on a topic, they will draw on philosophers um, to run it. So I'm thinking of Bernard Williams did a a big study on pornography, or Baroness Warnock on reproductive technology, or Honora O'Neill on issues around trust. Um, So they sort of recognise that 
uh, it's not quite public philosophy, but that's drawing on the world of philosophy in the public realm to do very important work, which, you know, in Baroness, Baroness Warnock's case, ends in, in legislation governing uh, how we can use reproductive technology. So the skills are recognised out there, um, but, but we don't have, we don't have, well, we don't have anybody like Habermas, actually, or, or, or um, Dwork in, in this country, I don't think, at the moment. I've got a slightly boring yeah. kind of trade question for you. Is, is how do you get hold of all your guests? How do you find them? How do you persuade them to appear? Um, do you always interview them face-to-face? And how long does it take to kind of record and edit we, each episode? We always interview them face-to-face. People think that we must have enough air miles to get to the moon and back because we've interviewed philosophers from all around the world. I mean, in fact, every philosopher of note at some stage or other in their career comes either through London or through Oxford where we where we have bases, and we've, we've got links with both Oxford University and London University now, so we've got access to offices. Uh, the whole process tends to take about an hour and a half from the time we sit down with them to um, the end of the discussion. We find out, because we're now on lots of um, email lists, who's coming through, um, and it used to be much harder when we first began, uh, and now it's much easier because... Publishers approach us, all sorts of people get in touch now. Um, so, uh, we perceive people as well. That we, you know, we think who would be really interesting to talk to, and we email them and say, if you're ever coming through London, do let us know because we'd love to interview you. So you we take recommendations from our interviewees as well. So who would be really good? Because it's quite difficult to know just from somebody's published works whether they would be good in an interview situation. And also, we have. Areas of expertise, like you've got aesthetics and so on. Um, and we've hardly got any interviews on aesthetics. <laughs> well, we've done a few, but, but you know, neither of us are uh, specialists in the philosophy of mind or the philosophy of language, so we have to take advice from from others on on that. You, you go to a, to the philosopher and then say what do you want to talk about, rather than we've got the subject. It depends. To find someone. It depends. Sometimes we suggest a topic based on something they've written or, or something that interests us and we think would work. Sometimes we say, do you have a topic that you're working on or are interested in communicating this way? Because we'd love to talk about it. And often the interviews which are on a fresh topic work really well rather than something that somebody's talked about ad nauseum. And sometimes we spot a gap. So we've, we've done nothing on Schopenhauer. We've still done nothing on Schopenhauer. So we spotted a gap and done nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll plug it. We'll plug the gap at some stage. Um, so sometimes we go and pursue a topic because we realise that in all the 200 whatever interviews we've done, there, there, there are some subjects that we need to cover. And some people email us and say, but you've done nothing on Ayn Rand yet. <laughs> <laughs> and so I always say thank you very much for that, that suggestion. <laughs> I mean, there's been a lot of names dropped tonight and uh, very eminent philosophers. I'm just worried that philosophy is becoming a bit of an old man and old women's sort of game and that the next generation of philosophy is not coming through because they're not given an opportunity to speak on subjects that they're actually well-versed in. I mean, if I hear another AC Grayling talk on something that he's not even an expert in, I think I'm going to turn the radio off and throw it away. I mean, he was on In Our Time to speak about pragmatism. He hasn't wrote a book on pragmatism and 
there's new generations of people that are experts in this field that are not getting any airtime to speak whatsoever, and that's going to be as much the death of philosophy as anything else. Well, I think it's an absolutely fair point that there's that part of our task, and what we like to do is spot the up-and-coming talent as, as well as the established ones. So we've interviewed, for example, we just interviewed a guy called Fiery Cushman, who's, who's probably, I don't know what he is, he's 30-odd years old. Or Joshua Nob we've interviewed, who's... who's not 35 yet. Um, this is very young in philosophical terms. <laughs> uh, so we do, we are aware of that, and we do ask around and try and identify, you know, who we who we think will be worth interviewing and, the, and who's going to be, you know, the big names in the future. And we want to give these people a leg up. You know, we see that as part of our role. But. It's our baby. We can do, you know, you can't do what you like with your own baby, but it's, it's, that's not a very good metaphor either. But um, <laughs> the, the point is, we're not a radio, a BBC radio programme. We don't have to be balanced. We could be idiosyncratic, quirky. We can be very biased in the choice of guests. So we can do whatever we want. Difficult. That's the thing about a podcast. It's up to us. It's like we're doing this thing. Nobody's telling us. Difficult to get to you to do, do one on Heidegger, for example. We, we haven't done one on Heidegger yet. It's not that um, we never will, probably, but we have to find the right person who's capable of communicating Heidegger in a 15 minute, or some aspect of Heidegger's work in a 15 minute interview. I think there are such people. You have no I've pro- been told. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But we haven't, we haven't narrowed that, the field down sufficiently yet. Uh, so we regularly get emails saying, you've got, you, haven't got a, you haven't covered Heidegger. Well, that's just tough, isn't it, in a way? Because we are exercising editorial control. This is what it's like to... This is the joy of podcasts. And if we're putting the effort in, we can choose. You don't choose for us. It's great that we've got listeners who love what we're doing and some who hate what we're doing. Because if people don't hate you, you're probably doing something wrong. But there's still the sense that we are in control of this. It's up to us. It's not, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's liberating in that way. Just as if you're writing a book. You know, I wrote a little history of philosophy. I had to select who to write about from the history of philosophy. Well, ultimately, it's my responsibility who I choose. It's not anybody else's responsibility. My name goes on the book. There are all sorts of reasons I used in selecting those people, which are not the ones that some readers think they are. <coughs> but it's, you know, it's my choice, and it's our choice there. And I think um, sometimes people emailing us treat us as if we are a BBC programme, and we're not. I should say, in defence of AC Grayling, the reason why he's used so often is because he's so articulate and so and, and such a good talker. Um, I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's partly producer laziness, but it's also because you know that he's going to deliver. Um, coming back to the point about sincerity and how you can hear it in somebody's voice, I was interested in you saying that when you hear politicians speak, you can hear whether they believe in what they're saying, whether they understand their own arguments. Have you tried to interview um, politicians as part of your podcast series? Is that something you think you would do and maybe scrap beneath the surface of some of the party political dogma to actually get to the philosophy? I, well, we have thought about it. I'm less interested in doing it, at least in this series. I mean, I wouldn't mind doing politics bites and doing a series with, with politicians. But actually, this is about philosophy. And there are a few politicians who 
have a background in philosophy. There's John Cruddus, for example, from the Labour Party. Tony Wright has got, I think, a PhD. Barry Gardner, we know. Barry Gardner. Oliver Lackwin. Laura O'Neill. Mary Warner. Well, there's few in the House of Lords, but they, they, they haven't come through electoral college. I mean, they've been appointed to the House of Lords. But, uh, I mean, I would always want to resist putting those kind of people into Philosophy Bites, because anybody we interview in Philosophy Bites has got the authority to speak uh, on the topic that we're talking about, unless there is a politician who genuinely is a renowned expert in a particular area, which there, there, there's no reason... There are some. This, uh, I've got his name. Somebody just published a, a biography... Of Hobbes. Of Burke. Of Burke. Of Burke. Yeah. yeah. There, yeah. there well, are we, people who are experts in yeah. that so, field. So I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't reject it a priori, um, but, 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 but um, the, um, the condition would have to be that they had genuine academic credential. I don't mean I'm academic with a small A or a big A, meaning that they, they, they had genuine credentials to talk about it, genuine authority to talk about it. Well, that's not the question about sincerity. The, the point about politicians, that I was saying sometimes some politicians are clearly under pressure to say things which they don't fully believe, because that's the nature of politics, and that can be heard in the voice. And I think what we try to get is people saying things that they actually believe, and so that there's an immediacy about how they're communicating. What I would say that within, a, though is within academia, there are people who rehearse ideas that they don't believe in. It's really bizarre the way that pressures of research lead people to adopt positions that they can't possibly... Really? Genuine, yeah. There's not a lot... That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought there's a lot of incentive to lie in philosophy. Not so much lie as... Um, Dissemble. As take a more extreme position than you actually hold because it makes for a better... Oh, that's slightly different. I mean, I think... Well, it, is. I th- it, is. it is a kind of deception, isn't it? Well, I think that the grant system pushes people in certain directions. So again, in, in, in the world of ethics, um, the subject, for example, I'm a, a, attached to you, who are Centre for Practical Ethics, uh, many of them there are working on the topic of enhancement, how we can improve the human being with drugs and so on. Uh, I mean, that's a very sexy topic. Uh, and uh, you can see how you could be drawn into that, not just because it might attract grant money, but it might attract media attention, and people might like that. Um, that's slightly different from presenting a view that you don't hold or being kind of dishonest about your views. I think at this point... Um Amazingly, we've already run out of time. So thank you very much for your great questions and thank you very much for the fantastic discussion. Thank you very much.